The readings this morning are from the Gospel of Luke. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city in Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary, and he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth, in her old age, has also conceived a son. And this is a sixth month with her, who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He's shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offsprings forever. I wrote Pat Robertson a letter, and I told him that I wanted to be a nun when I grew up. (laughs) Pat Robertson isn't Catholic, but he seemed pretty smart about religion, and I thought maybe he would be able to tell me what the next steps were that I should take as an eight-year-old if I wanted to become a nun. But I never heard back from Pat. (laughs) So in middle school, I wrote a research paper on Catholicism. Not because it was assigned to me, I just went to the library on my own in the summer and wrote a research paper on Catholicism, because I'm a huge dork. And then in high school, things reached a fever pitch when my best friend transferred to an all-girls Catholic school. I wanted to follow her there so badly I could taste it. There were the adorable uniforms, they had nuns. They had a brother school right next door. All my dreams come true in this one place, but the the Baptist parents said no dice. And I even managed during college to find probably the one Catholic guy that slipped in under the radar at Baylor and dated him for a couple of years. But none of these things ever worked out. So here I stand before you this morning, a Protestant with... (laughs) No vestments or incense or holy water or any of that cool stuff, but we're going to make the most of it today, and we'll indulge my Catholic fantasies by talking about Mary. 
There's a fair amount of theological and philosophical debate about Mary. Catholics, like we said, honor and revere her as the Blessed Mother. But Protestants sometimes are uncomfortable with Marian devotion, feeling like that takes our focus off of Christ. Feminists sometimes have disdain for Mary because they think her submissive attitude fosters a culture of male oppression. And yet others think she's the ultimate representation of feminist strength and power. She was a key player in the course of history and the fate of all mankind. She was a champion for the marginalized and the poor and the hungry. So throughout the world and over thousands of years, Mary's been adored and cherished. She's been shunned and mocked. She is a poster child for paradox. And in fact, sometimes Mary is referred to as Our Lady of Paradox, which is what the sermon is entitled today, because there are so many contrasts in her character and in the events of her life and in the way that we respond to her. If you've been coming to LMCC for a while, you probably have picked up on the fact that we embrace the many things that the Bible says that sometimes don't make sense to us. Sometimes we don't agree with it, we're uncomfortable with it, but we consider it a responsibility, a privilege to wrestle with those things that don't make sense so that we can seek the truth together. God even sent, well, God himself wrestled with Jacob in the Bible to prepare him for a spiritual change in his life. And and we believe that God does the same thing with us. So we like to wrestle with truths And the text on Mary gives us just such an opportunity. After all, it was in Mary's womb that the Bible tells us heaven and earth met. That's maybe the most stunning paradox of all time, and the one that we have the most difficulty reconciling. So I'd like to spend our time together today untangling some of these self-contradictions in the life of Our Lady of Paradox. So a study in the contrast of Mary's character reveals that all at once she was ordinary yet distinguished, she was humble yet powerful, she was vulnerable yet steadfast, and she was active yet patient. So ordinary yet distinguished, humble yet powerful, vulnerable yet steadfast, and active yet patient. Let's take those one by one. First, Mary was ordinary yet distinguished. There wasn't anything remarkable about Mary's history. She was from a regular peasant family. She was around 12 or 13 years old and recently engaged to Joseph when the story that we read this morning begins. And 12 or 13 sounds a little scandalous to us today for uh, being newly engaged, but at the time that was uh, normal. She by no means, though, met any modern standard of important or notable. Yet the angel Gabriel says to Mary, you have found favor with God. The Bible doesn't say exactly what Mary did to get God's attention, but when we look at the rest of the story and how things have played out over history, I think that was exactly the point, that God chose Mary because she was ordinary by our standards. After Gabriel left her, Mary immediately ran to her cousin, Elizabeth, who was expecting a miracle baby of her own. And Luke says, as soon as Elizabeth heard the sound of Mary's voice, her baby leapt in her womb. 
And then Elizabeth bursts into song and declares what we now know as the first Hail Mary. Blessed are you among women. So, so far, everyone in this story, God, Gabriel, Elizabeth, even Elizabeth's unborn child, recognize Mary as distinguished, even though she seems pretty ordinary. There's immense pressure for women today, or at least I feel it, to appear strong and capable and important But Mary wasn't really any of those things. When God chose Mary, he wasn't looking for the usual litany of qualifications. She wasn't high profile. She never ran for president. She wasn't perfect. She wasn't pious. God chose an unremarkable, unwed teenage mother to give birth to the Savior of all mankind. And I see this as a direct challenge from God. For us to let go of our temptation to judge and be distracted by our own systems uh, and rules about what makes somebody distinguish. And instead of looking around to focus inward, to test our own faith and question what we would be willing to risk in order to be a part of God's great plan. So I don't know whether Mary and Elizabeth always sang to each other or if sometimes they just talked, but in this passage, (laughs) they sing. And Mary had a song of her own to follow up Elizabeth called the Magnificat, and Mary, uh, sorry, Mary, Gary read that earlier beautifully. My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, All generations will call me blessed, for he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name, and his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm, he has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty." He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. Mary joyfully recognized the paradox and the privilege of an ordinary, unremarkable person being chosen to do great and mighty things. And how that demonstrates hope, not just for her on that day, but for all generations to come, including ours. She was giddy that God was making good on his ancient promises to do well by those who humbly serve him and at the same time was encouraging us thousands of years later to know that he will keep doing that for the rest of time. She was ordinary yet distinguished. The second paradox we find about Mary is that she was humble yet powerful. So consider your own reaction in circumstances similar to Mary's. God sends a celestial messenger to tell you he's got a job for you to do. And your life is about to be completely upended, and all your own plans are getting completely tossed out the window. I'd probably ask for a couple days to just think about this. I might request a meeting directly with God, ask him a few questions instead of hearing this from his number two guy. I might do little research, online research about virgin births. I don't know. <laughs> but not Mary. She said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. In other words, 
okay, if God's, if God's asking, I'm in. I'll do this. Some people are turned off by that kind of submission and see Mary's willingness to just set aside her own plans right there in the moment as a betrayal to feminism. But submission isn't always weakness. Submission is also a strategy. I was a lifeguard at a summer camp during college. And when we were training for water safety, we actually did very little training about the actual tactics of pulling someone out of the water when they're drowning. What we learned is that drowning people panic. And so the real strategy is to get the drowning person to relax, to take a deep breath, and to submit to your help. And then you can get them to safety. Mary knew exactly what to do when she was in over her head. She knew how to access real power in her life. And with wisdom far beyond her 13 years, she knew that submission was actually the gateway to power. 2 Corinthians 12, 9 says, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Paraphrased, you want to be powerful? All you need is this grace, and I'm giving it to you for free. And the more you need it, the more you'll get. And all that other stuff that you think means power, the wealth, the status, the job, all that stuff is not necessary. In fact, it gets in my way. I do my best work when you bring nothing to the table. Christopher Columbus named his ship the Santa Maria, the St. Mary, eliciting Mary's special blessing on his journey to the New World. And entire armies have asked for Mary's protection before heading into battle. All this because they know where Mary got her power. Her humility enabled her to mainline it straight from God. She had a fully flowing pipeline that was not blocked by pride or might or wealth. She was humble yet powerful. Mary was also vulnerable yet steadfast. In the passage we read today, Luke tells us Mary was greatly troubled at Gabriel's initial greeting and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. It's like when your boss's assistant comes and requests a meeting with you and you have to stop and think, "Uh uh-oh, is this a pink slip kind of meeting or a a promotion kind of meeting? And you know that in either case, your life is about to change in a big way. And Mary was feeling similarly vulnerable and frightened in that moment. And Gabriel had to reassure her, do not be afraid. And Mary's fear was justifiable, even after Gabriel had delivered his promotion, not pink slip message. She faced real risks by going along with God's plan. She could risk public humiliation, even stoning. She risked losing her fiancé and her family, She was even vulnerable in the actual birth of Christ. Mary had probably envisioned giving birth to her first child at home with the assistance of her mother and other women in the community. But instead, she had to ride nine months pregnant on a donkey, her days, 13 years old, and then surrounded by animals in a barn, she had to deliver that baby on her own. I mean, Joseph was there, but come on. (laughs) when 
When the new parents took the baby, Jesus, and presented him in the temple, as was custom, the prophet Simeon told them about risks that were still yet to come. He said, this child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be spoken against so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed and a sword will pierce your soul too. I don't know whether Mary knew exactly what Simeon meant by all that, but it was clear that the suffering of her son was going to cause her pain and agony. So she knew she faced risks. And 33 years later, we find her there at the foot of the cross, watching her perfect firstborn son die the humiliating and violent death of a criminal. That's what Simeon meant. But in the face of all these vulnerabilities, Mary chose to remain steadfast and to be faithful and to stick to the plan. There were probably a lot of things that didn't make sense to her throughout the next 30 years. But Mary believed that God was in control, that he wasn't going to leave her hanging, and that ultimately these events of her life and of Jesus would add up to something much greater than the sum of their parts. Jeremiah 29, 11 says, For I know the plans I have for you, plans for good, not evil. And Proverbs sixteen twenty five says, No one has ever seen, heard, or even imagined the wonderful things that God has ready for those who love him. Mary opened herself up to God's will her entire life, not just in that intense moment in the presence of an angel. And as a result, God filled her with grace. And her life is recorded as a witness to us, pointing the way for those of us who have chosen to follow Christ because she lived in dynamic obedience to the will of God. As events unfolded and things changed, she didn't waver. And this is the life that we are called to, continually making ourselves vulnerable by surrendering to God's plan, even when it's confusing, even when it's painful, and even when it doesn't line up with our own plans. We're to remain steadfast through the completion. Finally, Mary was active yet patient. The Mary of the Gospels is an audacious woman with some serious nerve. She is not the shrinking violet, uh, quiet, pious woman of Western art that we see. She recognized the importance of her calling and pursued it fiercely. And there are lots of examples of this in scripture. The Magnificat itself is a battle cry of hope and victory for the marginalized and for the poor and hungry. And she very clearly admonishes the 1%. And it was Mary, not Joseph, who was the one who seemed to reprimand Jesus when he was left behind at the temple in Luke chapter 2. And in John chapter 2, Mary pressed Jesus to intervene when when the wine ran out at a wedding that they were both attending. And if there was ever a time for divine intervention, it's when a wedding reception runs dry. And in Matthew 12, Mary and her other children heard the religious leaders were turning against Jesus and that he may be in trouble. So they traveled from Nazareth to Capernaum where Mary, where, sorry, where Jesus was preaching to try to talk to him about this. She was active, but not reactionary. The gospel says when things didn't make sense to Mary, 
or go the way she expected them to. She treasured up these things in her heart. She tucked them away, and she thought about them. She was patient. This is one of the many, many reasons that we are not this morning reading about Kara, mother of Jesus. One of my favorite authors was, of course, a Catholic priest named Henry Nouwen. Dane introduced me to him, who describes patience like this. As an active dwelling in the present moment, the mother of expectation. Mary was literally the mother of expectation. The word patience comes from the Latin word patior, which means to suffer. And Nouwen says, waiting patiently is suffering through the present moment. Tasting it to the fullest and the belief that something hidden there will manifest itself to us. Mary had that kind of compassionate patience, willing to suffer for God, with God, and her compassion literally gave birth to new life. Patience isn't just a chronological sequence. It's an active experience of the fullness of time and expectation that God is at work. When we are patient... We give God space. We give him room to do something in our lives. When we're impatient, we try to move out of the present moment as quickly as we can, and we cheat ourselves of the opportunity for God to do something with that. A lot of you guys know that I lost my dad in June, and during the short period of time of his illness in the spring, and in the several months since, I have experienced some of the most intense revelations of the nature of God and the way that he sustains us. I've learned a lot about what God does when we wait patiently and when we turn over our moments to him to do with whatever he will. I've learned that in those moments, those moments are when God can actually resolve the paradoxes in my life. He can take away the divisions between things like joy and sadness and love and hate, fullness and emptiness, presence and absence, and yes, even living and dying. And in his singular, miraculous way, he weaves all those things together and makes something beautiful with them. John sixteen twenty says, you will be weeping, you will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn to joy. Mary was active yet patient. As we wrap up here this morning, I want to think for just a minute about how these things that we've been talking about, Mary, apply to us today. Can your life be described in a series of paradoxes? I know mine can. How do I have the conviction to stand here right now and talk to you about the sufficient grace of God and yet lie awake last night worrying about the uncertain future of my family? How can I tell my children that love is patient and kind and yet rage at them when I'm angry? How can I openly weep at images of people who are suffering and have lost and yet cling tightly to my own time and resources that can be used to help them? How do we manage these paradoxes and make any sort of sense in our lives? How can we be a part of God's plan? How can we do great and mighty things when most of the time we're just a hot mess? Like Mary's 
Some of our plans are really messed up right now. I did not plan to spend this Christmas without my dad. I did not plan to have a Twitter-addicted reality TV star as the president of my country. A lot of crazy stuff has happened this year. And there's a real temptation to question or even reject God when things don't go my way. My incredibly wise friend who was widowed a few years ago at 43 wrote this to me this week. I keep thinking about how often our good God puts the people he loves in a pit and asks them to trust him. There is no way for them to know that they will ever get out of their perilous circumstance. Joseph in prison, Daniel in the lion's den, Mary, unwed mom, nine months pregnant on a donkey, and at the foot of the cross watching that baby be crucified. All they can see in the moment is the danger or frustration in their present circumstances. How good of God to sustain them in their moments of doubt. And how hard it is to trust him when we are in the pit. Even though we know sometimes he goes on to use people mightily during and after grief and suffering. God has used my friend mightily since her husband died in my life and in the lives of countless others as a source of hope and encouragement. In Mary... God provided us an impeccable example of how ordinary people can touch millions of lives for generations. Through our tears and compassion, through our humble surrender to service, through our fervent intercessory prayer, through our gentle care for those in need, and our steadfastness in pointing to the one who brings us hope and healing. Will you pray with me? Father, we want you to find favor with us like you did with Mary, even though most days we feel ordinary and vulnerable. Many of us are struggling today, even just because of the season, God, with paradoxes in our lives. We're experiencing highs and lows, joy and sorrow, celebration and pain. So we ask that you would give us patience and that you would take all of those things and put them together and make something meaningful of them. Replace our weakness with your strength and give us grace. Amen.